0: Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, a week in the life of Donald Trump. And Richard, our new president has been criticized on a lot of grounds, but nobody's ever faulted his work ethic. You and I are recording this on the sixth day of the Trump administration. We've already got a sort of a flurry of activity to talk about, so we'll just go around the horn today, and I want to start with uh, Obamacare because, of course, the the real action there awaits movement from the Congress, but President Trump signed an executive order on his first day in office to, quote, ease the burden of Obamacare, and Richard, a lot of people are wondering – exactly what this does, how much leeway the administration has to blunt the effect of the law prior to congressional action. How do you answer that question?
1: Um, I answer that question that it's very difficult. Let's go back for a second to the Obama administration. And whenever they read a shall as a may, uh, most of the constitutional conservatives came up and said that he was not allowed to waive various kinds of fees under various kinds of circumstances. So, for example, with the individual mandate. And my attitude about that was actually kind of mixed. I thought he could not just waive it, but I would have thought also that if it turned out that the entire apparatus that was needed to administer the program had not been put into place to sort of require that somebody to do something that's impossible to be done was a bit over the top. And now Trump comes along and he's playing the game exactly the opposite way. Uh, I think he means to say that one of the things that you do when you reduce these burdens is to announce to the world that people who don't want to join the individual mandate program don't have to pay the penalty that's required under statute. My guess is that he can be challenged. But how? And this is one of the sort of fiendish difficulty that pays every place – plays out in all of these cases, uh, the people who are really upset about that are those people who want the program to be kept in its integrity. The people who are not very upset about it are those people who managed to get uh, the benefit of the waivers. And the way the standing rule works is the people who get the waivers are clearly in a position to challenge a rule that they like, and the people who on structural grounds don't like it are generally very hard-pressed to find a way in which to do standing. And so you have to sort of figure out some way in which some health care is going to find itself prejudiced and so forth. And this is very similar to the complications you have on standing with the immigration programs where states have to provide certain kinds of benefits and the question is who can challenge it. Uh, so it may well be that it's wrong as a constitutional matter, um, but it's going to be very difficult to upset in the courts, which doesn't mean there isn't going to be some kind of political response somewhere along the line. And I, I think it's very clear to say that uh, Mr. Trunk is, how do we put it, a linear thinker. This is what I want to do. This is what I will do. And then afterwards, he tries to build up the constitutional superstructure or the statutory infrastructure to make the whole thing work. It's going to be a wild ride on this and everything else. And my fear is that he will make the problem for the Congress that much more difficult, because if you start moving down one direction or another, that just makes it all the more difficult to have a more coherent reform, whether you're trying to think about repair or replace. On the one hand, um... Repair or replace as the two alternatives, and there's a lot to be said for both of them. This is a very hard question to tackle.
0: One of these other wild rides. Let's talk about trade. We've got (laughs) President Trump already withdrawing the U.S. from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, that agreement hadn't been ratified by by Congress, so that's to some extent just a matter of of laying down a marker. But he's also saying he's going to meet with the heads of government from Mexico and Canada and begin the process of renegotiating NAFTA, which of course that's been on the books for some 25 years or so now. Richard, for a devoted free trader like yourself – Any benefit you can see from that? Is there a potential to get, as Donald Trump often touts, a better deal for the United States within the framework of NAFTA?
1: Well, it certainly is possible, but not the way in which he's thinking. The better deal that you want within the framework of NAFTA is to stop a bit of American imperialism, which is involved in the NAFTA trade, indicating that we have some say about the way in which places like Mexico operate their labor or their environmental laws. And they would be more competitive if those things were essentially left for them to decide, unless and until there's some external effects. But he doesn't want to make them more competitive. He wants to make them less competitive what I think he will discover painfully is that right now the United States uh, probably exports about a half a trillion dollars of stuff to Mexico and we have huge trades with respect to the Canadians probably not on that order but close maybe a little bit larger even at this particular point in time and you know if he's going to try and unravel this deal in order to make sure that the imports don't hurt us he's going to savage the export market and yet he doesn't seem to understand that there's any connection between the two of them my own view about this is he actually sounds much more like Barack Obama on these kinds of issues uh, than before, because both of them seem to think that you took the mercantilist view of the world, in which unless you have a positive trade balance with every other nation, it turns out things are badly in disarray, but that position doesn't generalize. Everybody can't have a positive trade balance with everybody else, because a bunch of pluses cannot basically produce a zero. And in fact, what happens is if it turns out that somebody has a favorable trade balance, what that means? means is they have to invest money into the United States, which helps improve opposition otherwise. Um, listening to him talk, it's quite clear he believed everything that he said on the campaign trail. And much of this is massive misinformation, and he could make a real mess of this type of situation, and also, I think, set up a genuine confrontation with his own Congress to the extent that he doesn't have unilateral executive authority to do the things that he wants. And, you know, the Democrats now are probably wondering why it was that they were so glorified or glorified so much the sort of I-have-a-pen-and-a-phone situation because this guy is an absolute master of using pens and phones under circumstances where a little bit of circumspection might go a long way.
0: Okay, Richard. So you and I are going to have to find an equilibrium over the next four years in terms of how often we build conversations around Donald Trump's tweets, but he issued one last night that does definitely bear on policy. Um, Let me get your reaction to this. The city of Chicago, where you live part of the time— has, as is well-known, a real problem with homicides and with gun violence. President Trump says in a tweet issued the night before we're taping this, I'm quoting him here, if Chicago doesn't fix the horrible carnage – carnage is in scare quotes there for reasons that I don't quite understand. But if Chicago doesn't fix the horrible carnage going on, 228 shootings in 2017 with 42 killings, up 24 percent from 2016, I will send in – the feds close quote now richard there's this whole burgeoning industry of trump tweet hermeneutics but we don't know as yet exactly what he means by sending in the feds so let's just pose it as a question major crime wave in one of america's largest cities the president of the united states wants to get involved what authority does he have to do so?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, there's always the Justice Department, and the Justice Department may have entered into some kinds of consent decrees with the city of Chicago having to do with civil rights violations, or there may have been some that were entered into by the city with private parties, which the president, as the head of the National Police Force, as we want to call the feds that, um, might be able to undo. But uh, when I thought sending in the feds, I first thing that came to my mind was he's thinking of sending in or mobilizing the National Guard and putting them under federal control and you know there are circumstances where you can send in the National Guard the most common one is where they're requested by people inside the state but there you're dealing with riots and insurrection and things of that sort and a mid-level crime rave I don't think would qualify as a situation which would allow the president to unilaterally march federal troops in there if the mayor and the governor of the state really don't want it and that he could be challenged on this and probably would be forced to back down. Uh, But, you know, he's certainly right that there's much wrong in the city of Chicago. And Heather MacDonald has written pretty eloquently about why it is that the decline of stop and frisk has tended to cascade and to lead into all sorts of other crimes in places like Chicago, Uh, results which don't happen in other cities which haven't gone down that particular path. But it's one thing to have a diagnosis and it's another thing to have the president call out the infantry and try to send them. In. so I assume that this is a classic case in which you tweet first and think later and you know this is going to be the pattern in his administration what he has to understand I mean it seems so obvious is when you're a candidate it's an interesting situation well, when you're the president of the United States the first rule of a CEO is to listen before you talk and his first impulse is to talk without listening and the two strategies produce very different results and he's going to find himself in terrible hot water unless he can constrain himself on these kinds of issues, and so far, in six days, it looks as though it 's adventures in Wonderland. Uh, he will do this, I think time after time until there 's some really powerful ramification that hurts him.
0: How about immigration? What we know so far there were some executive orders signed today there 's one that directs federal resources to the construction of a border wall with mexico it 's a, a fairly piddling amount of money compared to what would actually be needed to complete the whole thing because these are just unused federal funds. And uh, these orders also contain material about cracking down on sanctuary cities, which of course cities that refuse cooperation with the federal government on turning over illegal immigrants for deportation. Uh, why don't we start on that last point? What are, what are the limits of the federal government's power to crack down on cities there?
1: Well, I think those are probably pretty substantial. This issue has come up many times and most notably in World War II in a case called I think it was Heinz and Davidowitz in which it was pretty much said that the power of the United States to control aliens inside the country was plenary in time of war and any state policy which differed on the question of whether or not incarceration was or was not needed would have to yield to a federal command. And the point here was that the feds have taken over the entire area, so it didn't really matter whether what the states wanted to do was less intrusive or more intrusive on the individual rights uh, than uh, what the state wanted to do, that the feds always controlled it. And so I've always been of the opinion that whatever you think about sanctuary cities as a political matter, um, you're going to be in real trouble. And then the question is, what's the remedy? And you could take it one of two ways. I take it the president is now thinking of withholding funds. Uh, That, of course, is a very tricky sort of situation because there are many of the programs that you want to withhold funds that are going to help people that you really want to help. And so the question is, if it turns out that you need medical assistance in a city like San Francisco, are you going to let lots of people suffer major dislocations because you're upset about the way in which the San Francisco politics creates sanctuary cities? Um, the other thing to do is to actually start cracking heads down on individuals who are responsible and to arrest them for violation of federal law. Whether you can do that is this terra incognita as far as I'm concerned but the basic argument would be look this is what the federal law requires and to the extent that you do not allow us to get in there it's either interference with justice or aiding and betting people escaping and you could probably find a whole list of potential crimes in which it's not that they're the illegal aliens but they're doing something as an accessory either before or after the fact so uh, my view about this is that he has some help on this question the next issue of course is suppose he wants to do this and then Congress starts to intervene and tries to limit the authority. Um, we have a much more difficult question to decide whether or not the president in his role as commander-in-chief or whatever uh, can go against Congress, but my own view on this particular question is that if the executive has to take care that the law be faithfully executed to the extent that there is an explicit congressional command that says, please don't do this, you're going to be in trouble, this was exactly the same problem that George W. Bush faced when it turned out that he claimed the the commander-in-chief power to do things for which there was an explicit congressional order. Please don't do these sorts of things. And eventually, if you recall, Bush backed down on that before it went to the mat. Now, with Trump, you have no idea whether he's going to want to litigate any of these things. But it's quite clear that if this man comes to the diplomatic table, there's going to be a sledgehammer in one hand and a rapier in the other.
0: Let's talk a little about sort of the the nuts and bolts of government. President Trump has said within the last week – that he can envision cutting federal regulation by as much as 75 percent. He said it could conceivably even more. He's also instituted a federal hiring freeze, one that uh, we should note it excludes the military but otherwise a hiring freeze. Even, Richard, some people who are sympathetic to Trump's goals on those two fronts worry about a – Blunt instrument problem. So, if you're too sweeping and cutting regulations, maybe you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Or with the hiring freeze, maybe you compromise some positions that really are valuable to the federal government. How do you think about those kinds of questions?
1: Well, let me first make a a simple-minded distinction that's overlooked in his discussion is the United States owns large numbers of federal lands, and they have to administer these lands. And so one of the things, for example, that he talked about where I think he made the right decision had to do with the pipelines, the um, uh, pipeline with respect to the Dakota Access and and then the Keystone XL pipeline. And, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers has to issue a bunch of easements on these things. There are a lot of studies that have to be made. Nobody, I think, wants to get rid of this. That part of the business can be called regulatory, but it could also be called public administration. Hard to cut on that, even though you could change the rules. When it comes to the other stuff, you can do a lot to sort of cut things down, but you have to make sure you get it in the right order. So if you have these complicated books, rules on the books, and what you do is you try to administer them by cutting the workforce by three quarters, it's going to be complete chaos. That's going to be for Medicare, for Social Security, uh, unemployment insurance a lot of very intensive programs if you run it the other way and say look we like block grants instead of having the current federal administration of Medicaid you probably could cut it by 75% but you have to get the sequencing right he is not the kind of man for whom sequencing seems to be the issue of the day um, he just wants to take a bludgeon into this stuff and, and to try to do it now could I cut this stuff well this is the interesting question I think the most positive feature of the Trump administration from the point of view of a classical liberal are the various appointments that he has made to key cabinet positions, all of whom turn out to be cutters in some sense or another. Uh, so by the time you get done with what's going to happen with Andy Pazder and the Department of Labor, Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education, those rules can be really simplified at the administrative level. But how much are you going to say? Take the most dangerous of all these organizations, the Office of Civil Rights, You know, if these guys are having a budget of $100 million a year or $200 million a year, you could cut them by three-fourths, but that doesn't make a dent in what the overall situation is. The advantage you're going to get with these programs is not so much in cutting staff. It's in reducing the compliance costs and the peculiar adjustments you have to make in the private sector to comply with the administrative demands. The secret of the administrative state in many ways is simply as follows. We have a very small budget, and we just require you to do an enormous amount of work. And if you don't do it, we're going to punish you. Well, if you don't require them to do the work, what you're really going to do is transform the economy um, by shifting the private economy from a compliance culture to a production culture. And if he does that, it will be a great achievement.
0: So final question that I'll put to you. You've taken the position on our previous shows, as have a lot of other people on the right who are sort of uncertain of how the Trump administration is going to go that you were going to withhold judgment until you got a better sense of how the administration was actually going to play out. Obviously still way too early to make that judgment. But if you're giving President Trump a letter grade on his first week, how does it come out?
1: Well, what you have to do is to divide it by subjects. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, the kid who gets an A in math doesn't necessarily get an A in English. And some of the things that he's had, I think, have been extremely good in terms of his appointments. As, as I said, I'm very much in favor of the things that he did with respect to Dakota Access and indeed with respect to the Keystone. In fact, I've worked quite closely um, with people involved in the Dakota Access, so I don't want to count myself as a neutral person. Uh, but having looked at what the Obama administration does, I'm still... Still boggled eyed at the extent to which they ignore professional judgments by making political plays at the last moment to shut down this pipeline. I mean, I thought it was just amazing. On the other hand, one of the things I've come to conclude about Trump is whatever he says, he means. And so I am very worried about the fact that he's going to think that browbeating individual firms not to send things overseas is going to continue a pace. I think these companies are going to be very afraid about it. I think sooner or later he will overstep the line and there will be a huge brouhaha, which he will probably lose. Uh, but what he doesn't seem to do is to understand the importance of moderation once you're in office, particularly when you're putting forward an anti-free trade agenda or a very hostile agenda, maybe, on immigration we're not so sure which is opposed by a large portion of your own party. The only way that this works is if you think that executive power is really enormous and one of the things that one should note by looking at these orders he says by the power vested in me and the president. He doesn't say under such and such a statute or under such and such clause in the constitution. It seems that he thinks of everything as perhaps a plenary kind of delegation to him and this means that there's going to be some huge struggles that are going to take place. There's no question that the Democrats are going to organize their campaign. For 2018 and beyond, as a straight stop the Trump campaign. That was the purpose of the women's movement and if you start reading various things on the Huffington Post and so forth they're basically trying to figure out how you beef up the blue um, coalition and the argument is we must stop from their point of view this maniac or words even more pointed to the time Uh, so we are in for interesting times and some people as journalists like us or pundits like us may like it but remember to ordinary people the phrase you shall live in interesting times is a Chinese curse and perhaps both China and curse are very (laughs) relevant in this particular context. <laughs> All right.
0: Thank you, Richard, and thanks as always to our listeners. And remember, you can read Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian, and you can find it at Defining Ideas. That's at hoover.org. You can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of The Hoover Institution.